Hello, everyone. Welcome to the weekly Yes And podcast. So uh, it's called The Yap, uh, the weekly Yes And podcast. Uh, I might have to call it the yearly Yes And podcast because I think episode 118 was back in September, which means this is episode 119. And as we know, this is June. So not quite a year. Uh, but uh, I'm back at least for one episode, and I know everyone is clamoring to hear from me. That's insert sarcasm right there. But if you are listening, uh, I'm glad to have you here uh, talking about a topic that is a very serious topic, a topic that is also very, very important to me and near and dear to my heart, and a topic that I, I probably would like to share a lot on. And so I thought I would just you know hit record and start sharing some ideas. Uh, here we are, you know, uh, many weeks now removed from uh, the George Floyd killing. Uh, we are continuing to see protests happening, not only in our country, but across the world. We're seeing things um, at the corporate level change dramatically, at least from a PR perspective. Uh, you can, you know, look at the cynical side of, of all of that as well. Um, but as consumers change, policies change, you're seeing a lot of, a lot of unprecedented things happen right now. And I think you're seeing a lot of, uh, quite frankly, white people, um, standing up and echoing black voices. And I think of, of everything going on right now, that's, that's probably the most powerful. Now, I, I'm not sure what I ended up calling this podcast, but as I record it right now, I feel like calling it my white privilege. We'll see if that name changes, but that's kind of the jumping off point today because as we look at what is happening right now, we're hearing the term systemic racism. Uh, not everyone knows what that means. I think I have a pretty good idea. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. We keep hearing about white privilege, and the number one thing I hear from people all the time is, well, you know, from whites is, well, I, I, I didn't have privileges, and you know, I didn't grow up rich and I didn't grow up and all of these um, uh, counterpoints about how their life has not been easy. You know, white privilege, as I understand it, is not really a debate. It's a thing. You know, it's statistically speaking to be born with white skin in, in this country. Uh, you have uh, uh, better statistical advantages than someone that is born with black skin or dark skin. And that is just, that is reality. And the, 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 the facts, the studies, the research is there from, um, from filling out a job application and the name on that job application, um, right down to just um, uh, the economics, uh, uh, education levels, everything there based on, based on the color of your skin. And so when, when people, of course, no one wants someone to tell them that you had it easier than someone else. I don't want anyone to tell me that, I, that I've had it easier for some, than someone else. It, and it, you feel discredited, discredited for the work, the effort, all the struggle that you've put in, the, the, the tragedy and the loss along the way, and someone's trying to tell you that you've got privilege. And I understand the defensiveness about that. But if we can, uh, as white people, as a white person myself, get past the defensiveness and just look at what that actually means. It's just saying, hey, you were born a certain color. 
that has been at the top of the power structure forever. As a result of that, um, you're born with uh, statistically more advantages than if you were not born with white skin. That's period. That's not saying your your struggle, your journey hasn't been easy. Doesn't mean that there wasn't plenty of obstacles that, that, that tried to get in your way. It's just a fact of reality of where we currently are. And so that is white privilege. And so to acknowledge it, I think, is the first thing. I mean, I know I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm admitting my white privilege. I, I feel like I've always understood. No, I don't want to say understood. I want to feel like I've always known that uh, uh, the specifics of how I was born with white skin was an advantage. Um, but obviously, I don't definitely haven't understood to the extent of what that means. And so, uh, but I think admitting and, and just just uh, being able to say that it exists and it's a real thing is important. You know, it's, it's just like we've, everyone has seen people wanting to say when they hear Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, like to completely discredit, refute, not even honor empathically this message of when you have a race of people that um, uh, are not being treated the same way as, as, as another race, as white people, and feeling oppressed and wrongfully um, uh, uh, violated by, by police, by society, and to raise your hand and say, hey, does anyone, do you understand that our lives matter because of what we're seeing happen to us? And for someone to be white, to say, well, all lives matter is it, totally missing the compassionate and empathic aspect of someone saying, I'm hurt, we are hurt, we're, we're tired, we're confused, we're scared, we're afraid, we're upset that this continues to happen to us. Do our lives not matter? Of course they matter. And for, for, for the response of that to be, I'm not even going to hear that, um, all lives matter or blue lives matter. And so being able to, I think, admit that that it's a thing, right? White privilege is a thing. Blacks are statistically treated um, uh, uh, much worse than, than whites when it comes to the criminal justice system, when it comes to law enforcement. And, that, you know, that's just, again, we can go back to statistical uh, evidence of that. And so... That's, you know, again, in my experience, A, I, I was privileged, period. White, black, doesn't matter the skin color. I was born into a family where I didn't grow up with a fear of, um, of, of my, you know, my needs being met. I grew up with a sense of abundance, you know, my dad being a business owner and, um, you know, having everything that I ever needed growing up and being surrounded by communities in Flint, Michigan, where that wasn't the case. And often seeing that those people who were most difficultly, difficultly affected were those um, of color, were um, were the black men and women who worked in the majority of my dad's stores and fast food hamburger restaurants, and and seeing their lives and hearing about their lives had a huge impact, a huge impact on me as a child. Growing up in Flint, Michigan, where even before I knew what a friend was, my best friend was black and continues to this day to be black. Um, uh, Chris Pryor, Reverend Pryor, up there in Saginaw, Michigan. 
And as a result of, and Chris wasn't my only black friend, and as I went from one high school to another, I, uh, I had other black friends. And I experienced racism firsthand um, for them. Um, and I've heard people say like, well, I've experienced reverse racism. You know, I've been in situations, yeah, I mean, could I say that I was, I found myself in situations where I felt reversely <laughs> impacted? Yeah. But then, you know, five minutes later, I would be out of that environment, right? So, you know, maybe we've all experienced, you know, racism or discrimination if you're white, um, and but it's never been something that you can't leave as a white person. Um, but I remember, wow, probably being 12 years old, playing playing sports in our backyard. All the neighborhood kids would come over, and my uh, my again, my best friend being back back there. The balls would go over the fences. We would jump into the neighbor's yards, get the ball, jump back out. It happened all the time. And on this one occasion where my friend Chris did this, he jumped back into our yard. We're playing. All of a sudden, this neighbor who we'd never met is yelling at us, but he's yelling specifically at Chris. And he calls him the N-word the N and says, don't you ever come back into my yard. And I just, I will go to my grave remembering the look on Chris's face of being called that because this was a, a, a proud, strong young man who I could see in his face the, the disappointment, the frustration, the anger of that. I remember him leaving in tears um, out of just hurt and anger more than anything. Um, I experienced it, you know, you know, being pulled over in high school for having two black friends uh, in the car with me and being pulled over for no reason, except for the fact that um, there had been a fight at a at a party that we had nothing to do with. We weren't, I mean, when I say nothing to do with, we weren't even at the party, don't know who it was, but um, it was reported that a black kid started the fight. And so there I am driving around in high school at night with two black kids in my car and two police officers pulled us over no, no road violation and specifically questioned the two black friends in my car about where have you guys been and were you at this party? Um, there were experiences like that that happened to me growing up. Um, uh, another one that was just incredibly telling was my senior year in high school. I was a soccer player. We had one black player on our team. His name was Pat, also a good friend of mine. We were playing a rival school. Uh, we were more of a city school. The, the school we were playing was more of a rural uh, school. Um, they had no black players um, on their team. And throughout the game, um, there was you know racial slurs being uh, uh, directed at my teammate, my friend, throughout the game. It was a very physical, violent game that eventually broke out in a brawl. Um, and... Uh, and I just remember, I mean, just chaos. And I remember looking and there were three players running at Pat. And um, the comical part of all this is that Pat flattened all three guys. The, the non-comical side of this was um, the game got, that got called, right? It, it was a bench-clearing brawl. Both teams were fighting. There was only one kid 
on either school that was suspended for that, and that was Pat. Now, the game was videotaped. The videotape was used as evidence with the school district. The opposing team, a parent on the opposing team, was filming the game, and based on his video footage, guess who was the only player on the field that he was videoing during the fight? It was Pat. So, again, to go to how this all broke down, Pat was suspended for a day or two. It was supposed to be more. The school board met. Uh, This was an instance where, actually, I think my dad went um, and spoke at the meeting as a witness at the game and also as an influential person in the community and saying, I was there, this is what happened, and this isn't right. And um, as a result of that school board meeting, Pat was reinstated in school. Um, but this was this was things that happened, right? These were things that I that, that I witnessed growing up in Flint, Michigan. Um, and you know, you grow up, you get older, you know, things you, you move on, start a family, and different things happen. And but. Race and racial matters have, have, have just always continued to be an important thing to me. You know, I was, <laughs> I honest, you know, I will be honest in saying that I voted for Barack Obama both terms. Uh, was excited to, to have a black president. And um, I say that because, just to kind of transition a little bit, um, is that... When it appears right now, I guess a, a big part of, of, of what I want to say, you know, in this particular podcast is you look at everything that's happening right now and there's a lot of backlash. I think President Trump being elected to office was backlash. I think it was not only backlash of uh, Barack Obama being elected a president, but I th- also think it's backlash to the political correctness that's been going on. Um, for the last 15 to 20 years, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, um, as you know, more and more rights have been given, more and more laws have been overturned. And if anyone hasn't seen the 13th, the documentary, make sure you see that. But as on a very superficial level, um, society, I would say over the last 20 years, we've put this face on as far as what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think what happened is the idea of racism was seen as not being acceptable publicly. But so it finds other ways to live and breathe and it goes more uh, uh, submissive and it becomes more uh, secrecy and uh, it starts to show up more uh, um, uh, indiscreetly in um, local politics and policies and things that... Um, uh, make it more difficult for, say, minorities to, whether it's voting rights or um, in the criminal justice system when it comes to traffic violations and license, all these different things, it, it, it showed up in that way. And I think you, you, we, you have a lot of people who, um, whether it's racist or prejudice, have a lot of deep-rooted uh, racism and prejudice and when it's not allowed to be honestly shared, it's buried. But it doesn't go away. Burying something, repressing something doesn't make it go away. 
it just hides it and it has it pop up in other forms. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think um, when you saw the way that President Trump spoke about minorities, um, about Hispanics, about Muslims, um, about blacks during his campaign since he's been elected, how he's handled the different situations about you know, the NFL and LeBron James and these different vocal black leaders, when you've seen um, how he treated um, black protesters that came to his um, rallies, when you see the language that he uses, it's been permission for, I think, so many people in our country who have felt like, yes, I still feel this way, but have not been allowed to say it. And it's given permission to people no pun intended to let their true colors show and which can be scary. And, but the reality is, is that we cannot legislate away racism, removing statues and removing flags won't end racism. Electing Obama did not end racism. We're seeing this with NASCAR right now, you know, all of a sudden saying, Hey, Confederate flags are no longer a part of our sport is not going to end racism when it's been deeply embedded as a part of their their system, their sport forever. So when racism has been a part of our system forever, changing laws and language and what is acceptable on the surface, taking down symbols and statues and flags doesn't end it. It doesn't end it. I'm for all of that stuff coming down and going away. But we fool ourselves into thinking that it's ended. And this is where this is where the work is required. And I think it has started right now with white people um, marching and protesting, white people giving voice to standing with um, our black brothers and sisters and neighbors and community members standing up against other whites who say things that just are not acceptable instead of just kind of like, oh, you know, just maybe like even just walking away from the conversation without saying, saying something, having to be proactive in this. And racism isn't going to end until racism is allowed to show its ugly head in public and where it can be discussed and it can be refuted but through conversation, I'm not saying it's going to be a pretty conversation, but, but it has to, the conversations have to happen. Whites and blacks have to live amongst each other. We have to work amongst each other. Why sports is so valuable. Go watch. Remember the Titans. Yes, it's Disney. Yes, it's, it's uh, uh, um, a recipe for how you make those films, but it's true, right? We don't, Anyone different than us is scary because it makes us uncomfortable. It, it, we're uncomfortable because we, we, it's out of our, <laughs> we don't understand somebody. When we're forced to work with people, when we're forced to live and be on teams with people that are different than us, it breaks through these barriers. It breaks through the stereotypes. It breaks through the prejudice. We see people for people. It will not happen unless we are forced to have these conversations, to live with one another. And then now we get back into the systemic side of, of racism, which is um, 
we've got 400 years of, 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 of policy and law and history that has only continued to divide us as, as, a, as a race, as races. And, and we, need, we need to acknowledge that. And we need to acknowledge our systems. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this in, in terms of um, uh, a relationship, right? If we look at the history of our country with racism, and if we just took it to a – and treated it as it, it was two people who had a relationship with, an, with one another. And if one person was constantly oppressing that other person for so long and, you know – forever, decade after decade after decade. And then finally, that person decides, okay, you know, the line keeps moving to oppress less, oppress less, oppress less, oppress less. And then finally say, fine, I'm not going to oppress you anymore. And then we would not ask that person who's been oppressed to say, okay, hey, we're even now, right? We're on the same playing field. Hey, can you forget about how I oppressed you all those years. I'm not oppressing you anymore. Why are you still talking about it? Why are you still angry about it? A, the other thing that we're not acknowledging in this is it's not like as a country we've ever apologized for our history, right? We go, oh, we changed the laws. We don't, that, that, his, you know, slavery was a long time ago. Not really. Uh, you know, Jim Crow is a long time ago. Not really. Civil rights movement, right? Those laws changed a long time ago. Not really. And when we change laws and we change policies, we're, we're not apologizing for them. We're just finally at least acknowledging like how wrong they are. But what's missing in all of this is the acknowledgement of our wrongdoing in, in being able to, to say that we've been wrong, you know, apologize for however a system or a country can apologize and to acknowledge the wrong. And to not just say, hey, we've changed laws, we're all even now. Just look at our country. Look at how we are zoned and mapped. And don't say that we're all even now. It just, we have to be able to acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is our country is the product of, of hundreds of years of racism. And it's systemic. And it's it's created hugely complex and complicated problems that are, that are going to take many more decades to, um, to improve. But we have to acknowledge it and we have to stop feeling like it doesn't exist. And the last thing I wanted to share um, is just for me and all of this, and I've, you know, I've spoken to other people, had a great conversation with a good friend of mine, Lee. Ruben had me on his podcast um, about the yes and in all of this, right? I guess after all, this is the yes and podcast. <laughs> the yes and in all of this is um, this isn't about continuing to debate who's right and who's wrong. This the yes and is the yes and yes. Racism still exists in our country. Yes, it is systemic. Yes, there is white privilege. Yes, Black Lives Matter. Yes, there is. All of these things are true. Yes, they're true. You cannot progress until you say, yes, these have all gone on. These are going on. It has happened and is happening. The yes is acceptance of it. The and is, and what are we going to do about it? And how are we going to be an instrument for good, an instrument for peace? And the yes and in this is this 
is not a black problem. It's a white problem. It's everyone's problem. And, and whites, even though we don't need to be the lead voices in solving the problems, we need to be at the front in being proactive about listening and being proactive in our problem solving. This is the yes and of collaboration of all of us coming together, not throwing money at something and say, figure it out, or not throwing money at a charity or cause and go, there you go, black people. Now you can address it. And, and, and no, this has to be integrated. It has to be collaborative. It's got to be all of us working to, to, together, addressing the physical as well as the um, metaphorical scars that we have in our country. And instead of trying to sweep them under the rug and saying that was yesterday, not today, it is still today. We need to acknowledge them. We need to do this together. And for everyone who, who, who has taken a knee in protest and for everyone who, who, who marches and for everyone who, who's, who, who looks at the flag and says, I am kneeling, I am protesting, not because I'm not an American, but because I am an American. And because I, the ideals of this country, A, give us the right to do this, and B, the ideals of this country are ideals, they're not reality. We are continually to, we are continuing to struggle and strive for those ideals which we had never achieved. We're still trying to get there. To take a knee in protest is just saying, I love this country, we need to be better, which means we need to be heard, we need to listen. And we can do this together. It is what makes us the potential to be the best country in the world because that's, you know, that, that, that's in our DNA, that's, that's in our ethos is the, the rights of humanity. But also in that DNA and in that, in that thread is you can't also separate the racism at the same time. It's there as well. And we need to address that too. So thank you guys so much for listening. Not sure when I'll have another podcast. Um, the pandemic didn't get me talking, but, uh, but Black Lives Matter sure did. And um, I apologize for anything that I said in this podcast to any of my you know black friends or black people that I don't know um, that I got wrong or was offensive. Um, I'm willing to, to be wrong and, and apologize um, in, in, in hopes of, of trying to do some things that are right. So uh, thanks again, guys. That's episode 119, uh, My White Privilege. Have a great yes and day, everybody. Love you, Juju.